This is episode 48 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Max Malini. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 48. In the news department, seems like I left uh, some very important information off on my podcast on Slidini, and that would be the man Slidini had authorized to lecture and teach his magic, Bill Wish. Uh, I've enjoyed watching Bill's videos and his various online segments uh, where he teaches Slidini's magic. He's really great at it. And I can't believe that I forgot to include him in the podcast. So please, if you want more Slidini teachings, go to the best source available. That's Bill Wish. His website is BillWish.com, which is spelled B-I-L-L-W-I-S-C-H.com. And uh, you can get more information on the magic of Slidini from Bill. Houdini's birthday was just a few days ago. Happy belated birthday, Harry. Uh, March 24th, 1874. Other famous people born on that day. Allison Hannigan, hostess of Penn and Teller's Fool Us. And famous silent movie star and friend of Houdini's, Fatty Arbuckle. Sadly, the 24th of March is also a day when William Ellsworth Robinson, a.k.a. Chung Ling Su, died in 1918. Cesario Pelaez of the La Grande Vide show died in 2012. And though not magic-related... Comedian Gary Shandling died on March 24th, as did visionary author Jules Verne. Bricks. Who would have thought such a thing would ever happen? But now you can purchase a brick from Harry Houdini's actual house at 278 West 113th Street in New York City. To do so, go to the website house.278.nyc for more information Supplies are limited, but if you're interested in doing, in doing that, go check it out. It's Again, the website is house.278.nyc for more information. And here's another bit of news. The American Museum of Magic is offering a really cool uh, collectible coffee mug for sale with their logo on it. If you're interested in one, please check out their Facebook page for the American Museum of Magic and send them a message that you're interested in a mug. And before I begin the feature of today's podcast, I do want to encourage you, if you've not done so, to check out some of the wonderful videos and offerings by our fellow magicians during this time of self-isolation. I'll give you an example of a couple. Richard Kaufman has made one of his out-of-print books available for free uh, online, and I hear he has a second book that he'll be offering online as well. So just go to Richard's Facebook page to find out uh, more uh, information on that and get the link. Some magicians have been doing some teach-ins. Carissa Hendricks might have been the first to offer a whole show online for free, and it was fantastic. She also did a lecture, I understand, through the IBM recently. So um, I think the IBM is offering like online lectures. You got to have to go to their website and find out more about that. One of my personal favorites, and it's not being done because of the virus situation, he just happens to be offering it, is Rick Holcomb's 
coin magic lessons that he offers on YouTube. I I love coin magic, and because I'm a stage magician, I don't get a chance to do coin magic very much. But I've been brushing up on my skills and a lot of that via Rick's site. It's awesome. Um, also, recently, my friends John Cox and Andrew Basso did an interview together during Houdini's birthday, which I only got to catch the last few minutes, but it was great from what I listened to. I think it's still available via their Facebook pages, I think. I, I think Andrew did it, so you probably have to go to Andrew Basso's Facebook page. That's probably where it is, although John's usually pretty good about putting a link on, so you can check John Cox's um Actually, we want to check out Wild About Houdini to see if he's got a link on there. So, And speaking of interviews, Colin McLeod and Pro Mystic did an excellent interview together on Facebook about modern-day mentalism. And I, I tell you, if you haven't taken advantage of any of these things, please do. It, this is gold, and it's for free. And speaking of free, there is one other thing I want to mention, and that's this podcast. If, you, uh, if you're new to the podcast, there are 40-some previous episodes to listen to, and please spread the word and let others know about it. That's it for the news. Now, I am excited to be writing about today's performer. Um, it was probably about 10 years ago or so that I conceived this brilliant idea of writing a play about Max Molini. I even had the perfect guy to play Malini. That was my best friend, Bobby. He was short and stout, like Malini, and could do accents better than anyone I knew. And we talked about Malini. He loved the idea. The only thing that scared him was the sleight of hand with cards, because my friend, he was a really advanced coin manipulator, but he had never touched a deck of cards. Don't ask me why. It just wasn't his thing. So the, the whole card trick thing was a bit of a challenge, but he liked challenges, so I knew he'd pick it up easily. There was only one big issue that got in the way, and that was I learned that Paul Daniels had already done a play of sorts on Max Malini, and that was enough for me to drop the project altogether. Though I was curious what Paul Daniels had done, and thankfully there was a DVD. So I purchased the video, and, uh, well... I have to say I was a little disappointed in what I saw. I was expecting a whole play on Malini where Paul Daniels would play Malini. And what he did was some combination of talk on Malini with a demonstration of magic. And sometimes he did it in character and sometimes not. And it was, I know, I thought it was all over the place. Now, I love Paul Daniels and all the historical stuff he'd done on his TV shows, but I wasn't so hot on this particular project. That's just my opinion. And add to that, there was Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants, where Malini figures fairly prominently in that show as well. So I guess it was a good idea that I dropped the thing altogether. Now, fast forward to 2020. And sadly, all three of those gentlemen are gone. Ricky Jay has passed away. Paul Daniels has passed away. And my friend Bobby has passed away. But I came across the script recently, or the rough draft of the script. And in seeing it, I thought, well, maybe now is a time to finish this thing, seeing as I have a lot of time on my hands. And also, I thought it might be a perfect time to do a podcast on Max Malini. And clearly, Die Vernon can be credited for helping to keep Malini's name alive. He wrote the first biography on Malini, 
Uh, and much of Molini's magic lives on through other performers. Probably one of the most notable tricks was his egg bag, which, by the way, he did not invent. He only came up with the alteration to the bag to make it easier to handle. It was Albini who first created the small version of the egg bag. You can learn about Albini on podcast number 27. But let's get into Max. Max Melini was born on August 14, 1873 in Ostrov, close to the border of then Poland and Austria. His real name was Max Katz Breit. In magazines and newspapers, he is listed as being Bohemian, Austrian, American, Polish, and more. The Melini bio by Di Vernon states that he immigrated to the United States, specifically New York, with his family at an early age. However, a newspaper article from the Grand Rapids Sunday Republican in 1903 states that he ran away from home at age five and worked as an assistant to two Austrian magicians. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't see that anywhere else, but it was uh, via an interview with Molini, so who knows? Vernon states in the Molini biography that around age 15, Max saw a magician by the name of Professor Seedon, who did magic, fire eating, and more. And Professor Seedon ran a saloon in the Bowery. It would appear Max's education came from Professor Seedon, and his performing experience came from working at bars and saloons. These were probably the last places that anyone would want to see conjuring of any kind. So you'd have to be extra special in both your manner and delivery in order to get noticed. Mulaney was known to have a thick Eastern European accent. I often wonder, though, if he didn't add or embellish this, as he did apparently come over to the U.S. at an early age, surely long enough to have lost the accent altogether. But we know he kept the accent his entire life, and it was mentioned in article after article. It was part of his appeal, to be honest. This Professor Seedon taught Max sleight of hand tricks along with the cups and balls. Mulaney's hands, by the way, were very small. He wore a size five and a half glove. But despite this, he was more than capable of creating exceptional wonders with his hands. In fact, it's pointed out that he could do more with his small hands than most magicians could with hands twice his size. Now, here's a statement from Ricky Jay's book, Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women, about Malini. It's a highly biased statement and one that I don't totally agree with, but there are many people who do. It goes like this. Malini was rarely featured on music hall or theater stages, even though he performed in the heyday of the great illusionists. Yet far more than Molini's contemporaries, the famous conjurers Herman, Keller, Thurston, and Houdini, Molini was the embodiment of what a magician should be. Not a performer who requires a fully equipped stage, elaborate apparatus, elephants, or handcuffs to accomplish his mysteries, but one who can stand a few inches from you and with a borrowed coin, a lemon, a knife, a tumbler, or a pack of cards, convince you that he performs miracles. Okay. Now, I love Ricky J, but I don't agree with putting down anybody that uses props, handcuffs, etc. in favor of the superior skill only. Don't get me wrong. I think you should be able to use borrowed objects to do incredible magic. It should be something every magician should strive for. But there are clearly different types of magic, different styles of magic, and so forth. Magic, for many, is a theatrical art form, and 
Some frown upon those who try to convince the audience that they're performing miracles. See what a slippery slope this is? I love all kinds of magic, all forms of magic. I love the pure sleight-of-hand magic that you get from a Malini or a Slidini. I love illusions, sawing a lady in half, vanishing lady, etc. I love mind reading. I love escapes. I love stage magic with apparatus. It's all awesome in my book, but does it work for everyone? Now, that's the key. It doesn't work for everyone. It's not everyone's style. Some branches are best to avoid apparatus, like mentalists, for example. Some branches can't function without apparatus, like illusionists. So you see, there's a place for all of it. And Nalini carved out his own place by being the guy who borrowed everything. In fact, articles I've read said he truly did borrow everything, including the tables to perform on and even the plants and folding screens that were used as scenery. This was his style, and it's brilliant, and it worked for him, and it made him a huge success. Throughout his 20s, he went from busking and working in bars and saloons to doing private engagements. These private functions were held by very wealthy people, and he was carving out a niche that few fellow performers were even aware of. So if you wonder why Malini wasn't working in theaters and music halls, it's because he designed his act for smaller audiences and frankly targeted to a very specific audience the wealthy. His career seems to take off around 1902 when, upon visiting Washington, D.C., Malini did not waste any time. He went over to the Capitol building, and right there on the steps of Congress, he walked over to Senator Mark Hanna and bit a button off of his coat. Before the stunned senator could even respond, Malini took the button, held it back onto the fabric of the jacket, and lo and behold, it was back there sewn in place, just like it had never been removed. According to Ricky Jay's book, the amazed senator hired Malini for an engagement, and that was to launch a 10-week stint of entertaining for the most influential people in the nation's capital. The famous quote by Goethe must have been written with Malini in mind, Be bold, and mighty forces will come to your aid. Because Malini, he was nothing if not bold. So bold, in fact, it completely disarmed the many royal audiences he performed for. For example, during a performance before the Prince and Princess of Wales, he addressed the princess as Mrs. Wales and asked her to take a little peek at a card. Rather than being offended, the royals found his amusing behavior to be entertaining so much so that it later led to a performance before the King and Queen of England. The first time Malini's name appears in magic periodicals, it's Mahatma magazine in 1903. They referred to Malini as a society magician, and at that time he was working in London. The New York World Herald paper on January 24, 1903 has a story about Malini biting the button off the coat of J.P. Morgan. This apparently would become a staple of his act. In fact, as late as 1922, Mulaney was still biting buttons off coats. This time, at the White House, he bit the button off the coat of President Warren G. Harding. These little stunts proved to be very good publicity getters. July 1904, Mahatma Magazine refers to Mulaney as Mulaney the Button Biter. Going through the pages of magic magazines that mention Malini, there are two things that are most pointed out. Number one, he is fooling everyone, magician and layperson alike. And number two, he's a real worker, always playing society and private gigs for high fees. And the magic magazines do point out that Malini has a stellar reputation 
as an amazing magician, but few in the magic world have had the honor of seeing him. Now, as the years go by, he does on occasion appear as a guest at some magic functions and does perform, but magicians were not his bread and butter. Here's a list of some of the clients that he worked for in the United States. President McKinley, President Harding, President Coolidge, President Teddy Roosevelt, John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Mrs. Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Jacob Astor, John Pershing, Alexander Graham Bell. In other countries, the dignitaries include King Edward VII of England, King George V of England, King George VI of England, President Mikado of Cuba, President Ibanez of Chile, the King of Siam, and many more. Malini would often use their images on his posters and his advertisements as well. There's a wonderful story about Malini borrowing an antique table for a performance. He, he used it for his signature trick that we know today as the card stab. In the effect, several cards are chosen by members of the audience. They're lost in the deck, and then the entire deck is spread haphazardly face down across the tabletop. Malini is then blindfolded and he would take a penknife and he would stab at the various cards, impaling each chosen card on the end of the knife, but also in the process, stabbing holes into the tabletop. Now, naturally, Malini was successful in locating the cards, but at the end of the show, in this particular instance, the hotel manager who had loaned him the table said, first off, he was completely horrified, and he said to Malini, my table is ruined. What will I tell people now? And Malini replied, tell them Malini did it. I can only imagine that the hotel manager probably tossed out the table because he thought it was now ruined and worthless. Can you imagine what that very table with the stab marks in it would go for in a Potter and Potter auction today? Got to be astronomical prices for sure. His card stab was legendary, but also his egg bag was legendary, which I mentioned earlier on. Another popular trick of Malini's was making a borrowed bill appear inside a lemon. Now, Malini was the co-creator of this effect, along with Emile Jarro. The borrowed bill, usually a $10 bill, had the corner torn off. Then the remainder of the bill was caused to vanish. A lemon was introduced and examined and then cut open, and inside the lemon was found a soaking wet bill with the corner missing. The exact corner was being held by the spectator. An interesting twist was the fact that due to the bill being soaking wet, it would often be offered to the magician as a tip. This dated back to the days of his work in the Bowery, when money was often a bit harder to come by than it was when he was working for kings and queens and such. Another Malini specialty was having a group of people, say six for example, each select a card from six different decks of cards. The spectators were instructed to take a card, place it in their pocket without looking at them. At the conclusion of the routine, it was discovered that each spectator was holding a queen of hearts. A wonderful effect. In his hands, even a trick as old as the cups and balls became a new trick. Remember, he was the guy that borrowed everything. So in this case, he would borrow three drinking glasses and some newspaper, and he would wrap the paper around the glass so that you couldn't see the inside. And then he'd take a cork from a wine bottle and he'd cut it to use in place of the little balls. And then often maybe a celery stick would be the magic wand. And then he proceeded to seriously astonish a room full of wealthy people. 
According to Di Vernon, Mullaney, in the third part of his show, did the following trick. A large foulard was displayed on both sides. Spread on the stage, and upon being lifted, a monster bowl filled with water was produced. The procedure was repeated, and this time a tall cylindrical bowl filled with water and goldfish was produced. This latter bowl actually weighed nearly 50 pounds. This was a very, very effective effect, and one of the largest productions of this type ever performed. Last month I talked about Paul Rossini. Well, Rossini, when he met Okido, he wanted to learn how to do the bowl production because it was popular with Mullini. Mullini was one of the magicians that inspired him. But unfortunately, I don't think Paul ever added the bowl production into his act. Around 1919, Mullini teamed up with one of the biggest names in magic, Harry Keller, to do the smallest big show or the biggest small show, depending upon how you look at it. They were both hired, along with Dick Ferris, who acted as director and master of ceremonies. The performance was going to be for an audience of one. It was for American actor David Warfield, who was in the hospital recovering from a broken leg. He was stuck there in the hospital, and he hired these gentlemen to keep him entertained. Together, Keller, who was retired at the time, and Mullini presented a show that was an hour long. The show was stopped by the head of nurses due to the overwhelming amount of laughter coming out of the room. By the way, if you want to learn more about Harry Keller, you can listen to podcasts episodes 8, 9, and 10. They are all on Keller. Malini loved a good cigar, but the Malini book points out that he was very cautious about who he accepted a cigar from. Apparently, earlier in his career, someone gave him a cigar, which he gladly took, and pocketed. Later, at another show, he offered same cigar to a wealthy patron. Unbeknownst to Malini, this was a gag cigar, and after a few puffs, the cigar exploded. Malini lost a big client that day, and it was a big injury to overcome. Injury to his reputation, I should say. But he did accept cigars from royalty. Here's a great story from the pages of The Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women by Ricky Jay. I know ver well how to speak with kings. He just come to me after I have perform and say, Ver good, Mr. Malini, ver gut indeed. And I answer, much obliged to you, royal mister. Then the king he laugh and say, half a smoke. And I take a cigar and say, you bet. I keep this with my other king's cigars, not I have collect. And he laugh again and say, well, Here's another, and don't keep that. So the king and Malini enjoy a smoke together. That wasn't the easiest thing to read, I'll say that. Malini was known to live a lavish lifestyle. He wanted to appear to be among the very same wealthy patrons that he performed for, so his clothes were expensive and well-tailored. His shoes were especially well-cared for. He was known to enjoy whiskey and gambling, and as one might imagine gained and lost several fortunes over his lifetime. Probably the most famous story about Mullaney that I can think of is one that Di Vernon used to tell. I first recall reading about it in the pages of Genie magazine. It's also in the Ricky J book and the Mullaney book and in other places as well. And it had to do with an unusual effect that Mullaney would perform. He would borrow a hat and a coin. Then he would take the coin and he would spin it upon a table and he would cover it with the hat. And he would ask a spectator to name either heads or tails. 
and I assume this part was probably a matter of choice, I'm assuming, but he would pick up the hat and reveal that it, you know, which one it was, heads or tails, whether the person got it right or wrong. Then he would try it again. He would spin the coin, cover it with the hat. This time, though, when he lifted the hat, the coin had vanished, and in its place was a huge block of ice. Now, this is back in the days before refrigeration, so huge blocks of ice were common, though hardly easy to carry around with you. Vernon would tell how he was once invited to a party along with his friend Charlie Miller, specifically to try and catch Malini in the act of loading the ice into the hat. So one of them had decided, well, I'll watch the left hand, and the other person would watch his right hand. And Malini would do the trick and fool them again. Even knowing what to look for, they were still unable to find any trace of the moment where he loaded the coin in the hat. But moreover, where Malini even kept the block of ice in the first place. It's my understanding that today, Steve Cohen, the millionaire's magician and a huge devotee of Malini, has presented this very same effect in his show at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. And by the way, the Waldorf was one of the places that Malini himself performed in during his career. I've read that Malini's show was not as good as his impromptu magic, and I'm not sure I believe this. Uh, looking over the list of material in his show, I'm sorry, but it sounds like a really strong show. Some of the effects include a barehanded silk vanish, a color-changing silk where a white silk turned into an American flag, a levitating cigar trick, a trick where he would take a glass tumbler, toss it in the air, and it would vanish in midair. There were lots of card magic in the show. He did his blindfold card stabbing, the egg bag, cut and restored ribbon, the coin game, which was sort of a puzzle effect with the coin in a spectator. He did something called Bill's Lemons and Egg, which was basically the Bill and Lemon, also a Bill and Egg combined. So he would borrow two Bills and he would do the effect with two Bills and then they would end up in the two different objects. The button trick was also in the show the production of bowls of water that I mentioned previously. And then his closer was something called the inertia trick. I don't know if he called it the inertia trick, but that's what it was referred to in the Mulaney book. This inertia trick is amazing, but it's not a magic trick. So he does all this incredible magic, but he closes his show with something that's not a magic trick. It's more like a scientific stunt. Here's what you'd have. You'd have four or five glass tumblers filled with water. And on top of them would sit a tray. And then right directly over where the glasses were, you'd have four or five cardboard tubes. Often it would be just playing cards bent into a circle um, that would go over these spots. And then on top of those tubes would be eggs. Eggs would be placed. So if there were five tumblers, it'd be five eggs. So you had really this, you know, their glasses and water and eggs and they're balancing. I mean, it's just a precarious situation. Oh my goodness, if this went wrong after such a great show, it would just be a disaster. So I'm sure everybody was sitting on the edge of their seat going, oh, I hope he doesn't mess this up. This could be a nightmare. And then Malini would hit the tray sharply with his hand, sending it flying sideways, and the eggs would drop straight down into the water-filled glasses below. What a sight that must have been. 
Max Malini retired to Honolulu, Hawaii in the 1940s. He had had great success there years earlier by performing before the Queen of Hawaii. He performed his final show on the island for a group of sailors and soldiers. At the time, he was not well, and he actually had to perform the whole show seated. Max Katzbreit, a.k.a. Max Malini, died October 3, 1942. It is said he died of malnutrition. He was 69 years old. There are many more Malini stories out there that are quite humorous. Ricky Jay, Di Vernon, Johnny Thompson, they were all known to share wonderful stories about Malini. The one thing that there isn't out there is a lot of biographical information on his life outside of magic. He was a very private person, Malini, and he didn't speak much about his life beyond performing, so his early years are virtually unknown but he was known as one of the greats in magic and will forever be known as the last of the mountebanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you did, please be sure to like the podcast via whatever form of like button your podcast provider offers. If you're listening via iTunes and Apple Podcasts, please consider giving me five stars and leaving a review. And here's why. Um, I've been looking over the list of podcast shows that are regularly featured on the Apple Podcast site. Once a podcast reaches a certain number of five-star reviews, it gets featured on there. And in addition, uh, that helps the podcast to pick up even more and more listeners, obviously. There are currently no magic-related podcasts that are on that big list, and I'd like to be the first, if at all possible. Right now, I have 17 five-star reviews. I need at least 100 to make it on the list. I should point out, don't do it if you don't think the podcast is worth it. However, I get a lot of people that contact me and just tell me how much they love the, uh, the podcast. I get emails, texts, calls from people about the various episodes. So I know it's only a matter of time before we reach there. So with that in mind, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be well and be safe.